Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher. And we're the hosts of this podcast. This week, we're staying true to our advertising roots with a conversation between our own Rory Sutherland, Vice Chair of Ogilvy UK, and Richard Shotton, Deputy Head of Evidence at Manning Gottlieb. The jumping off point for their conversation is Richard's soon-to-be-released book, The Choice Factory, 25 Behavioural Biases That Influence What We Buy. They talk about a mix of biases and heuristics and discuss the evidence and application of, or lack of application, of the Pratt-Fall effect, placebo effect, priming and many more in this counterintuitive human world. The conversation starts with Richard's short description of what his book is all about. The book's called The Choice Factory. Uh, the th- overall theme is how you apply social psychology and behavioural science to advertising, which although there's a lot of books about behavioural science, it's quite surprising. But there's only a handful of things like Decode, things like that. Yeah, Decode where good. Yeah. It's a brilliant book, mm. uh, where they try and apply that to, 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 to marketing. And then the, 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 the premise of the book is following a single person through the day, and they make 25 decisions, you know, basic decisions, should I give money to a beggar? Uh, should I not? Should I hire someone at a, a job interview? Shouldn't I? And each of those decisions are explained with reference to a classic bias. Um, so everything from anchoring to social proof, to price relativity, to the pratfall effect. Then I'll, I'll talk about you know, the, the nuances of that, that bias in the experiment. Then I talk about uh, experiments I've done which um, prove that the bias applies to brands today. And then finally, the bulk of each chapter is, well, now you know this as a marketer, what should you go and do differently? And the wonderful thing for marketers at the moment is, partly because of the rise of digital advertising and the nuances and data it collects, there's more opportunity to apply these biases than there was previously. Why do you think, given that you would, you, you, uh, an alien would assume that the central focus of the advertising and marketing industry would be on the question of how people think, choose, decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why has it taken such an absurd backseat? Maybe not always. I think I think in the fifties and sixties, people were heavily. Uh, yes. yes. So, so what? Where did it all go wrong? To quote well, George uh, Best, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or rather, George Best's um, uh, uh, hotel hotel yes, bell yeah, bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where did it all go wrong? Well, I mean, I think that's you're right. It's fascinating that up till. Probably in 1957, there was uh, a f- you know, phenomenal integration yeah. of psychologists and advertisers. Uh, people like Louis Cheskin, who came up with the idea of uh, turning margarine yellow to other people's. He was this guy at the Colour Institute, absolute yeah. genius. Oh, oh my, yeah. But he, he's brilliant. Um, yeah. And I think you know, so much you can still learn from him about the way they set up tests and didn't look at what people said, but created a field experiment and watched what they did. But then I think there was that, um, night was, I think 1957. Hidden Persuaders, Packard, um, tapped into this fear of mind manipulation, subliminal advertising. And I think that gave a lot of psychology and advertising a bad name. Now, ironically, I'm pretty sure that uh, Hidden Persuaders is based on a, you know, on a lie. Uh, interestingly, Vance Packard is saying, you know, it criticises advertising for its manipulation. 
he um, based it all around this subliminal test in a cinema where they flashed up. Which was fake. Which is completely fake, yes. Um, so, ironically, the uh, criticism of advertising as being based on a lie was itself based on a lie. Based on a lie. But yeah. I, think, I, th I, think, I think that... It was by ice cream or something, wasn't Yeah, it? I think it was flashed up for an imperceptible length. Yeah. 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 But when someone went back to investigate it, there was no record of the test ever happening. They didn't even, I think there were certain things like they didn't sell some of the goods that they were supposed to. So there was all sorts of um, uh, dodginess there. So I think that's, that was part of it in the 50s. But I think the bigger worry is the was it your, your friend Anthony Taskell talks it the arithmocracy. He's used that phrase. Yeah, Anthony Taskell, yeah, the arithmocracy, yeah. The, the, I think the, there's an element there of this overfixation with rationality and logicality from maybe the decision maker. In a, in a client company, so a, um, a field of study which often throws up things that seemingly are illogical is open to criticism. So I think I think that that's that, that's a potential problem there as well. Um, but then there's a there's a third area, which I think one of the most interesting biases in the book I talk about is the is, is the pratfall effect. Yes. So so of all the biases, there's that's the one that's probably got the uh, most interesting advertising examples. So pratfall effect, essentially, if you admit a weakness, you become more opinion. So based on... There's some various weird findings that it works more among men than women, and that it, there are some strange yes. findings I've seen. Um, yes. You've also got to be pretty good to begin with. Yeah, to get yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, if you think about it, a signaling device where in order to get away with it, you've got to be pretty good to get to begin with. Is of course an effective signaling device. Yeah, because you couldn't get away with exploiting the pratfall effect if you were a total prat. Yes, and so there's a really interesting thing. Of course, that's the interesting thing with counter signaling in general, which is counter signaling is interesting because it doesn't seem to exist anywhere outside human behaviour. So signaling, costly signaling, all over nature. You know, yeah. uh, flowers. I mean, ants, a big power birds, pronking, yeah. all, all that stuff. Got styles, yeah twerking, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. But um, you're ostensibly a bit shit at something to show what you can get away with. Yeah. Which you might say reassuring yeah. the expenses of your stellar oh, artoir, yeah, yeah. or you either love it or you hate it. Yeah. Now, so, you know, I mean, the classic case of counter signaling, A, there's the there's a great paper on it, actually, um, by someone called it Stanovich and Toe, spelled T-O, something like that. And it's called Too Cool for School. Ooh. And it's, it's, their logic is, for example, very upper-class British people aren't remotely frightened of being thought working class, but they're a bit scared they'll look up a middle class. So what they do is they actually adopt behaviours which someone in the class below couldn't afford to adopt, like very scruffy clothing or having a shit car, for example. That's interesting because it seems to be uniquely human, but the pratfall effect is something that advertising cottoned onto, I think, which is very difficult to sell to clients. Yes, well, because that, 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 that's what comes to this fascinating thing of, you've got Aronson, Willeman, and Floyd did a 66 study, 1966, where they proved in laboratories that, you know, were experiments the power of uh, the pratfall effects. You've had a wonderful recent study from Northwestern University where they've shown that it works in real life. So they've looked at 111,000 um, online reviews, and they've showed that yes, as you'd logically expect, likely to purchase goes up as the review gets better. And all these reviews are out zero to five, 
But once you get to 4.2 to 4.5 in the category, after that, actually likely to purchase decreases. So if you've got a review of 4.7 or 4.8 or 4.9 out of five, but you get lower sales. The artifact is it that it's a product of the number of reviews you have, meaning you have a higher average. They did, they did such a large volume, I don't think so. There's 111,000. Because I've seen the same thing with that on Amazon that about, I was told oddly yeah. 4.9 on Uber, that's the best there is. Because, yes, because there were some people who yeah. uh, got five of those one. Or even actually a brand new and haven't yeah. even used an Uber yet, but yes. they get five by default. So when Uber drivers see a 4.9, they go, he's taken 50 journeys, he's been a bit of a twat. Well, I'm sorry. Can you delete that? Because we may have an American audience. Just for Americans listening, in British English, okay, the word twat is not a very strong yeah. swear word. It kind of means jerk or yeah. idiot, okay? Just for I've yeah. made that mistake before. And I love how your way of avoiding the embarrassment of saying the word is the same. Yeah, yeah. Say it again. Yeah, 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 just yeah, keep yeah, on yeah. saying it because maybe I've normalised it. Sorry, yeah. I just yeah. got to explain that because yeah. that's yeah. useful for any Brits listening as well because I've made that mistake. Which is you use what to British English is a, is a fairly mild word you'd use in front of your grandmother. Yeah. And your American audience go and go, whoa, yeah. like this, because it's like the sea bomb to yeah. septic tanks. But um, the, um, the, interesting thing, the, the, the interesting thing there, the platform effect is very, very interesting, isn't it? Which yeah. is that actually little displays of weakness or little displays of imperfection are actually kind of almost make you plausible. Yes. yes, yes. I think there's an element of it's from that the Northwestern study. They're feeling that it's too good to be true. And I think that's the interesting thing. There's these there's uh, experimental evidence. There's real world evidence, and then there's all sorts of explanations. This isn't just some aberration of uh, of the platform effect that most people. But the ticking of the electric clock line for Ogilvy oh, has an element yeah. of kind of you know there's a noisy clock. But it, there's something about those sentences which... Now, Bob Cialdini's done a similar thing, hasn't he, in terms of sales, where he said that one extra thing he's discovered to add to his yeah. general rules of influence is if close to the point of selling someone, let's say, a photocopier, you go, uh, you know, it is pretty expensive, but I think you'll find it's worth it. Yeah. Um, weirdly, I was, you know, I found very persuasive reviews on Amazon which said... When I first bought it, I thought it was going to be a bit so and so, yeah. but actually, I use you know I thought it was going to end up in the back of a cupboard, but actually, I use it every day. Yeah. You know those kind of things. Well, all those things I think they what they demonstrate is honesty. People are expecting a sales or an advert to um, be partial and just show the positives. If you admit a weakness, you have proved your honesty, and therefore you are going to become more believable. Because the, the interesting point there is that probably. Um, it, it again falls into my thing, which is that the whole obsession, uh, the whole belief that human decision making is an optimizing process is a mistake. Okay? So the assumption that you're trying to optimize, okay, is fundamentally wrong because in an uncertain world you have to take two things into account the average outcome and the degree of possible variance, particularly mm. the downside. Secondly, you probably realise that optimising isn't a very good decision-making strategy because you can only optimise on salient features, not on invisible ones. Yes. If you over-optimise on a subset of all features, what you might be doing is, is making an unwitting trade-off where on some unmeasurable features, the product is terrible. Do you see what I mean? So if you bought... 
if everybody had a formula for buying cars, which was a multiplier of kind of acceleration, fuel economy, maximum speed, okay, then if you only chose cars on those things, then cars would actually become, for example, uncomfortable and ugly because the formula mm. didn't actually include those things. And the way to optimize the, uh, uh, the variables on which the calculation was being performed would normally come at some trade-off or cost somewhere else. Yeah. So there's an, there's an element in which we probably are quite shrewd. I mean, if you notice consumer behavior, nobody buys the, well, actually, it's not true, 17-year-old boys who've got a car insurance They'll just have the cheapest insurance because they're doing it as a legal requirement. But 40-year-olds don't choose the cheapest insurance there is. They'll typically go, particularly if there's a recognisable brand that's 25 quid a year more expensive, they'll pay a premium for that. Yeah. And that's what you might call a variance reduction strategy, which is the car insurance which is cheapest, let's face it, particularly with a product like insurance, you provide very cheap insurance by the simple expedient of not paying out when someone had a claim. Yes. Okay? You know, you can provide very, very high interest rates by the simple tactic of being Bernie Madoff. Okay, so a natural instinctive suspicion towards outliers or extremes, which may explain why the best-selling product is uh, the brand leader is very rarely the cheapest product in a category. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the other thing, though, I think that that rec that's all about recognition of there's trade-offs, yeah. and the the best advertising applications of the practical effects have been explicit about that. So VW, well, it looks ugly, but that's because we just care about the But it gets you that. Yeah, or Guinness, well, yes, you do you have to wait. some of those you wait. Yeah, of course you do, that's what you want to People hate Marmite, the fresh cream yeah. cakes, naughty yes. but nice. written by, I didn't yeah. realise Salman Rushdie wrote that. He wrote that, he, he wrote that. Yeah. 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 Um, Tragedy actually went off to become a novelist, yes. completely squandered his talent. There we go, yeah. But then that comes down to the question of, we've managed to list, and there's dozens more, of brilliant examples of advertising using the platform. So it feels like it's regularly used, but that's the wrong way of thinking about frequency. What I did instead was look at a weekend's worth of papers, you know, 500 ads or whatever it was, flip through them and try and find examples of practical effects. As I did with a colleague, we found like one and we're probably stretching the definition. So it is a remarkably infrequent, rare tactic. Um, despite all this evidence. It's very hard to sell. And the reason well, the, the line I most regret not selling, which we couldn't quite sell, was a line for the spectator when we did their subscription advertising, which was that the end line, which was just uh, Alan Howell came up with it, annoyingly right. Excellent. Yeah. You see, and we knew it was right, but because at the time we didn't know about the platform effect. Yeah. And we had we known about the platform effect, I think we well, could have said that actually acknowledging a fault in, you know, a trade off. Yeah. But then in the, whilst you might persuade him that this is, to all intents and purposes, the best strategy for the brand, for the product, I think the issue comes down to this idea of Stephen Ross's the principal agent effect. Yes. So, that's, yes, so the idea that um, businesses are hampered by the fact that the agent, the marketer in this case, doesn't necessarily do what's in the interests of the principal, the company. Well, he's going to defend his life yes. to the board. And, and, and ten people on the board are going to go, why are you spending the company money to emphasise yeah. a weakness? Yeah. So every advertising campaign, there's never a certainty of success. You know, Stella, really extraordinarily expensive, could easily have, have bombed. Yeah. And then the market director had to go to the CEO and FD said, I've spent a million quid on this advert. And he'd probably lost his job because the FD would have said, well, of course it failed. Of course it failed. We told everyone our product was expensive. Now, don't you know basic economics? So unless the entire company, I think, is... Uh, the way you do that, actually, is that 
generally, uh, as someone who worked a lot of booze advertising said, um, brand owners are bad advertisers, importers ah. are good. Yeah. Because the importer is a guy who's just bought the rights to Copperberg Lager or whatever yeah. it is. As far as he's concerned, he's just having a big bet. Okay. Yeah. I, he expects it to go nowhere, but he thinks there's a small chance he might make his fortune, yes. and he's happy to go weird, because he goes, I'm unlikely to make a fortune with banal advertising, so yeah. let's go out on a limb. Yes. Whereas the brand owner, who's actually got a pension with the brewery, and, and okay. changing jobs into and he's not an mind. entrepreneur in his mindset. He is more now. This is the this is the central question, which I think destroys large organisations. Which is there is a distinction between how good a decision is and how easy it is to defend. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have a very very strong view actually, which drives me insane. I voted Remain in the yeah. in the uh, referendum. But the patronising attitude of Remainers towards people who voted Leave, portraying them as a bunch of idiots. Mm. First of all, it's a very, very narrow understanding of demographics. There are a lot of very, very bright people who wanted to vote Leave. Interesting that entrepreneurs like Dyson, like Mr. Weatherspoon Man, yeah, etc., the JCB yeah. Bamfords, yeah. those kind of family people weirdly wanted to leave. Mm. It was the kind of corporate people who were obsessed on, about staying. Just an interesting one. But the other one is that um, there's an awful lot about decision making, okay, where, so let, here's an interesting area of decision making, where I would regard the opinion of an uneducated person as much more reliable than the opinion of an educated, sophisticated person. There, there are quite a few of them. Because if there's signalling involved, okay, the educated person who wants to signal his intelligence or his, in, in the case of Remain, I think it's signal your uh, cosmopolitanism, yeah. which is a major status marker of, you know, of, of Ponzi people. Okay. Now, I'll give you a great example. If you want a really good recommendation for an Indian restaurant, okay, you are far more likely to get a good rep rep uh, recommendation for a curry house yeah. from a scaffolder called Terry yeah. than from the editor of the Times Literary Supplement, okay? Because Scaffolders are perfect to recommend. So they've got quite a bit of cash, okay, but they want good food. They're not interested in showing off their yeah. sophistication, okay. They just want a pretty good meal for some reasonable money. And they'll recommend a good curry house. Go to the editor of the Times Literary Supplement or a philosopher. Mm. They'll want to they'll want to add the Indian food is not primarily about signaling sophistication, yeah. it's about enjoying a hearty, honest food. Yeah. And he'll recommend a place which is mostly French, but with a bit of cardamom <laughs> at the top. Yeah. Okay. And it'll be shit. Yeah. Okay. I've had, I've had Indian restaurants recommended to me by peers of the realm, by aesthetes, by yeah. you know art directors. Shit at recommending <laughs> restaurants. You ask me, it's all about the decor. Whereas a good copywriter yeah. knows it's cool. The fucking Taj Mahal. Okay? <laughs> yeah. It's got flock wallpaper, but it does a fantastic chicken yeah. madras. And there are lots of cases where actually your need to signal something by making a decision. Yeah. And it may be the rationality of the decision, okay, actually prevents you from making, making a better decision. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I think in the corporate setting, that thing which is that whatever, if, if I pretend everything's logical, it may not be a very good decision, but if things go wrong, no one can blame me, yeah. is an extraordinary form of corporate insurance, which we used to call the London, uh, what was it, the Heathrow effect. Yes. You, you probably heard me talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry on, carry yeah, on, sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Oh, I was going to say, the... So there's two sort of things. I think the point about uh, how knowledge can uh, make decisions worse. I'm sure there was an experiment, I didn't write about this in the book, where people are asked to guess city sizes. And when you ask Americans about, let's say, what's bigger, like Milwaukee, Minnesota, or uh, 
uh, or, or guess the various sizes, they were worse at doing it than Germans because Germans just used a simple rule of thumb, have, have yeah. I heard of it or not? And so it was almost that level of knowledge had, uh, had lost some of the value of those. Um, but what I was going to say on the, on, the, on the platform effect, I think one of the interesting areas is, yes, you have this principal agent or various other factors stopping a vast majority of advertisers using the bias. But in a way, that's what I think is the most interesting of all. In the, if we know one thing about advertising, it's the power of distinctiveness. Yes. The Hegarty, if the world zags it, or when the world zigzag, the yeah. around it is. Um, so if most people are never going to accept this. If you have a client who is either, as you say, owned by an entrepreneur, or owned by a venture capitalist, or know that they are sixth or seventh in the market, prepared to take a greater risk, it's probably the closest well, what thing P, you well, have What P&G, of course, did with Old Spice. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, that, exactly. That's a classic case. Now, it's probably, in defence, okay, yeah. you wouldn't do that with Tide. No, but if it's your, when they do those, you know, they're quadrant. Yeah, and, actually, and people don't talk about this risk thing, risk return thing enough. Hmm. Because we tend to go, hey, whatever your brand, we're going to do a great job on it, and we're going to be really brave. Now, if you're Tide, which by some weird anomaly, um, although it's probably not as good as Purcell, uh, has 70% of the North American detergent market, okay, then actually, to be honest, your brief is, don't, don't cop this yeah. up. Okay, because your potential for growing that to 80% is small. The vital thing is you have this anomalous brand dominance. Don't mess that up. Okay. Now, you could argue, actually, with Old Spice, which was a trivial part of the P&G portfolio, in that sense, doing something brave couldn't fail because the worst thing that would happen would be you kill it off earlier, which yeah. may actually be good because you waste less time worrying about it by just killing it. The good news is you actually create a brand that's worth owning again. Yeah, and so what you might call high stakes advertising makes perfect sense in certain, say, challenger categories. If you're a challenger brand, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense for time. We ought to be honest about that and say, you know, look, I really sympathise with the guy who's doing that job because it's goalkeeper job. Yeah, it's don't make any really dumb mistakes. It's yes. not a striker job. It's not a kind of. I like thing. that. Yeah, that's lovely. Lovely mistakes. Yes, it's and it is uneven. Mm. And, yes, yeah. Yes. And one of the interesting things is to probably in management is to frame someone's uh, risk reward thing mm. and to recalibrate it. Because if you if you look particularly at modern capitalism, which is it's driven by things like the shareholder value movement, by it, it's very fearful. Yeah. You know, in the 80s, when everybody was drunk all the time, there was the feeling that if you did something brave and great, you might get rewarded, promoted, mm. a great new marketing directorship. Whereas it's a very, very safe culture at the moment. And my argument is, you know, the value of an ad agency, in fact, is nothing to do with the fact that we produce advertising. What we've got to maintain here is a culture mm. where you make stupid suggestions and still get promoted. Because, you know, I, I, one of the things, I mean, I'm thinking with only change, that we need to instigate a kind of free speech policy uh, for things like, um, you know, brainstorms and workshops, just on the grounds that, um, you know, you need people to be able to advance weird, sometimes politically incorrect hypotheses, just for the purposes of exploratory thought. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I said this, I, mean, I was at a meeting in, in, on pensions. And that the whole discussion is we must get 25-year-olds to start saving for a pension. And I said, okay, I buy this. I said, you realize that an evolutionary psychologist would basically laugh. Because he'd say, if you're a 25-year-old male, your focus is on securing high-quality, either long or short-term, mm -hmm. mating opportunities. Okay? Yeah. 
since a pension contributes a lot less than that than, to that than say a cool apartment or a sports car and I'm not, I'm not you know um, you wouldn't be that surprised if human psychologists, an evolutionary psychologist would say look actually particularly among males the saving instinct in other words it, it, it's a period being a young male is like being old spice it's not like being tied okay yeah, yeah. i'm 51 i'm tied now just try try and get to 60 something without fucking it up to yeah, yeah. okay but when you're a young male the idea is to is to place slightly outrageous bets yeah and therefore pension doesn't really fit in that mating strategy um, because no one ever kind of went out for a date and said, well, before we get started, let's discuss pension provision. Or as someone said to me on Twitter, you know, what's a nice girl like you doing in a poorly diversified set? You know, that kind of language yeah. is not really... Yeah. No, you know, my view is that we have to be in a position in an agency where you can put forward the Darwinian view. Mm. Now, a lot of people go bonkers about it, but nonetheless, it's, it's a lens, it's a way of looking at the world, if consistently you try things and it looks as if maybe that Darwinian view is right, yeah. then you have to at least reappraise and say, maybe we're just trying to do the wrong thing here. You know, I mean, one of the weird things, one of the vital things about this is that behavioral science, I, this is the only really important thing, okay? One, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limiting. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Okay? Which, in other words, it, it increases the scope of considered possibilities by allowing for the fact that humans are not rational optimizers who are always trying to do this one utility-maximizing thing. So my weird one was just to say in the pensions meeting, which I still think is true, you would get a higher rate of pension saving if you set quite a low ceiling on the amount you could save. Because if you look at the ISA, look at the PEP before that, these are weird um, British tax-efficient uh, savings vehicles, they're wrappers technically, mm. in which you put a certain amount of savings every year in a, in a, in a wrapper and then you're effectively, you'll pay no capital gains on it. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about those things is that because they had a maximum of £10,000 a year, if you didn't at least save a quarter or a half or a whole, you felt you were missing yes. out on something every year. There was an anchor being set, which because the pension is just so large. It, exactly. now, million, if you're earning 50,000 bucks a year yeah. and the maximum you can put into a pension is 50,000 bucks, yeah. you look at that and say, ah, it's bloody ridiculous, I'm not going to bother at yes. all. Okay. With pension earning 50,000 bucks a year and you, you get a massive tax rebate on up to $4,000, mm. then you're going to go, pep, and not piss that up anymore because that's worth having. So maybe you won't put four in, maybe you'll put two, but you'll put something. Yeah. Well, the, the, the point becomes, because um, I think we can get, I mean, as you say about the replicability crisis, you sometimes get caught up in this um, sterile argument <coughs> about uh, replication, which you know is an issue, but it would be taken too far. And actually, the thing is, it's come up with hypotheses that you then go out and test. I always think the benchmark shouldn't be, have I absolutely found the truth? It should be, have I proven the case enough that it's now worth uh, investigating, uh, investigating with a test. Um, and especially if you compare it, well, how are you going to get the evidence for the other routes that you were thinking of testing? Um, as long as they're held to the same kind of benchmark. And let's be honest, you can't explain the luxury goods industry without some sort of Darwinian 
signaling explanation, mm. in my view. I mean, you could, you know, in order to explain it in terms of actual utility, you'd have to tie yourself in knots, wouldn't you, to a level of absurdity. You know, patently, there is some element of human behaviour which is rivalrous and relative, not simply, uh, you know, not simply a question of individual well-being. Yeah. And therefore, this will occasionally lead to runaway sig Fisherian signalling yeah, yeah, yeah. wars. Um, and then there's a question of, do well, you know, <laughs> there's a really tough question of, is that good or bad? And the answer is, it's really complicated. Mm. Because a hell of a lot of technological innovation, I would argue, is actually funded by the human urge to show off. Yeah. So in the early days of the automobile, I don't think cars were better than horses, uh, actually. Um, you know, computers, I would argue, were a kind of nerd form of yeah. signalling before they really became useful in some, in some respects. Uh, you know, there was a whole point in which the computer industry was driven by hobbyists, not really by practical application. And so the extent to which the signalling urge provides, as Geoffrey Miller says, the early stage funding. Yeah. Uh, that's the argument that birds can fly because the wings got bigger and bigger for sexual signalling purposes and then acquired a secondary use. Yeah. 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 This is the interesting, I mean, there's the kind of Richard Dawkins explanation, which is, well, any kind of wing is a bit useful because it helps you glide a bit better. Yeah. And then it gets, now Miller would say, well, actually, there's a big gap between a gliding aid yeah. and a thing that enables you to fly. And the thing that funded that grotesque overinvestment in wing plumage was probably sexual selection um, before it actually became useful in terms of natural selection. So it's a way in which what you might call um, evolution can go off on a tangent, yeah. if you like, and actually neglect the narrow incrementalist pursuit of survival mm. and efficiency, yeah. and go and do something weird. And so it's that nature's R&D function, yes. in a sense. Yes. Um, and I think there's something interesting there. Now, equally, you could say, well, there are also areas of competitive expenditure which I would say are enormously destructive of human well-being. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, if you're being really harsh about it, I mean, I mean, I mean women's fashion and beauty products occupy three billion a year. Now, I think you should just actually just nationalise the whole thing. You know, I don't like, you know, I mean, you know, just nationalise the whole thing and you just have government issued cosmetics, okay, which are inexpensive. And, you know. Uh, you're not investing your pension in this idea, right? It's complicated because, I mean, you know, a lot of that is actually self signalling. That's the other thing we haven't talked about, which is we signal to other people. Okay, and it took me years to realise that a hell of a lot of signalling is actually signalling to myself. Yes. So the guy who um, really cracked this, ah, because what he's essentially saying is that oh, you can't control, for example, the the uh, dilation of the pupils. Yeah. Okay. You can't consciously control, it. but you can hack your environment so that your mm. if you want your pupils to dilate, you can either go into a dark room or you can. You can control it through intermediate hacking, yeah. okay? Not through a direct act of will, but by what you might call an oblique act of will. So if you want to, your heart rate, you can't control it. Humphreys. Humphreys. Yeah. Nic um, yeah. Is it Nicholas Humphreys? I think you're on Nicholas yeah, Humphreys. Yeah, 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 fantastic. Yeah. And he believes that you can't control your immune system directly mm. by an act of will, but you can get a home homeopath to give you some weird tinctures while wearing a white coat and talking yeah. to you nicely. And it will effectively make your immune system work harder. Yeah. Just as a dark room will make your pupils dilate. Now, my daughter, her explanation is, I'm not doing this for blokes. I'm not even doing it for other women. I'm doing it for myself. myself. 
because I can achieve a feeling in myself yeah. by putting on makeup that I can't willfully generate in my own mind. I can't say to myself, be confident. Yes. Okay? Feel great. Yeah. You know, but I can actually put this stuff on, and particularly if it's expensive and involves a huge amount of work, it will help yeah. me achieve. And, you know, <coughs> that's madness, you know, I mean, yeah. cars do that. Yeah, partly, partly you probably buy a really flat car so you can drive back to the small town where you grew up and humiliate your school contemporaries. But a huge amount of it is how it makes you feel about yourself. Mm. And so, you know, that yes. self-signaling thing, because we're, we're obsessed with this idea of complete free will, despite the fact that the most obvious bodily processes are a denial of it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I think the placebo is one of the most fascinating areas. Well, as you said, there's all the, there's an element of who you signal to, but there's also the intricacies. Um, so I'm pretty sure it was Anton de Crane, but I might be wrong. They did a big meta-analysis of colour and showed that uh, for analgesics, red was much more powerful than all the symbols. And should the pill be big or small? Big or small, you take three or one. Yeah. Um, Saline injections more powerful than pills. And I think it's that variability of biases which is so interesting. I think that is a phenomenal area of, 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 of growth. Um, there's some lovely work around social proof. So Because doctors are trying to actually eradicate the placebo effect in their weird bloody trials. My view is it's the best thing we got going well, for us. That, I mean, that's another area of placebo. In the, I went and bought loads and loads of um, painkillers, yeah. various different... Um, the brand new ones were best, don't they? But, yeah. they, but this was just to see the proportion that were kind of red, and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a minority. Most of them were white. So why is it a in one of the most profitable industries could be getting extra um, strength out of their pills with no side effects? Because it's no, yeah, no side effects. Yet they, they're ignoring it. I think that goes down to, again, again, this worry. But one of the weird things, talking to Dan Ariely about mm. this, which is that nearly all pharmaceutical companies have scientists who assume that the job of a pill is to be really easy to take. Whereas they're not the industry. Whereas actually, actually making yeah. it a bit difficult. Yeah. Or even, as Dan said, if you want people to remember to take their pills, if you build a bit of a complex ritual into it, if I have to grind up my pill in a pestle and mortar and then dissolve it in half water, half lemon juice, okay? Hard to, hard to forget to do it's that. Hard yeah, to, yeah. Also, it's hard to forget that you haven't done it, yeah. whether you've done it or not. Whereas if you just pop a few pills, you're very easy to go, have I taken those pills yeah. or not? I think there's lots of tricks around fluency of text and then you know making the text slightly harder. Slightly harder to read, yeah. yeah. So yeah. creating slight disfluency. But again, it's really hard to justify. Yeah. Now, this is, this is the really vital thing, which is in the solution to complex problems, quite a few of the best solutions will be counterintuitive or indeed, there's a wonderful saying by one called Donella Meadows, who says that when you have a complex system, which is man manifesting a problem, yeah. usually you find a huge amount of human focus on the lever that makes the most difference, all concentrated on pushing it in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And... That, I think, is that it's often the case because the wrong direction seems logically sensible. It's exactly as, you know, well, how do we incentivize people from having a pension? We'll give them all their tax back. Incredibly generous. You know, it makes economic sense in some ways. Yeah. Believably unmotivated. Yes. Or on the, on the news today, um, well, breakfast news was 
the publicisation of how many people, especially young men, are missing doctor's appointments. So the amount, you know, Cialdini calls it the, the big mistake of social proof being used in completely the wrong direction. A lot of government advertising publicises the scale of problems. His work from the Arizona Petrified Forest shows that you tell people it's a common problem, it'll happen, happen more often. Um, An interesting one with doctor's appointments, which mm. is, I think, the other thing that um, is really interesting, which is my colleague Chris Graves in New York, who's founded the Ogilvy Centre for Decision Science, Behavioural Science, he calls it the real why. Yeah. And there's a real why. There's, I mean, I mean, we don't even know our own real why. So, you know, I admit that of myself. That you know, you know, we, you know, why do I do the things I do? Well, you know, actually, there's the official explanation, and there's the deep down. Yeah. Um, What's it they use in evolutionary biology? They use the proximate and the ultimate, or something like that, you know. But there's an explanation yeah. for it. There's the convenient off-the-shelf explanation, and there's the real reason. And the interesting thing there is that the real why is often very different from the official why. Mm. Why, you know, I'm often, you know, I'm often talk jokingly about things like this, which is products where the real value of a dishwasher isn't that it cleans your plates, it's that it gives you a place to put yeah. the dirty plates yeah. out of sight. That a swimming pool lets you walk around your garden in a bathing costume without yeah, feeling yeah. like an idiot. But there are real whys in. Um, I, I think the real why is a really, really interesting question. Let's take, for example, why older people won't do online banking. And the official why is that they're worried about security and that someone yeah. will hack into their account and steal their money. The real why is probably, if you delve a bit deeper, that the people who are reluctant aren't very good online, yeah, so they and therefore they'll make a mistake, they feel yeah. they'll pay British gas yeah. £200,000 by mistake, you see. But they'll never say that, least of all in a group oh, setting, yeah. okay. You know, that's what I mean about the real why of Uber, the real why of striping yes. toothpaste, the real why of all these things is very different from the official why. And um, often the real why might be, I mean, it might be slightly unattractive, it might be slightly... Um, you know, possibly, you know, um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm very interesting when you invite when you invite evolutionary psychologists into an ad agency. They'll often say it's a very shrewd idea for companies to employ a large number of attractive young people, which will enable them to hire unattractive older people. That are not <laughs> right. Right. Okay. That's, yeah. that's not actually. Oh wait, that's, that's not. Exactly. We ought to be clear. That's not necessarily a sexual motive. That might just be that as a person. Your status is raised by being yeah. in the presence yeah. of attractive people. Okay, get someone to admit that on a, on a survey. No one, no one is going to admit that. I, you know, I like the Darwinists for that because yeah. they just they just go right in for the kind of yeah. ugly, you know, the ugly truth. Yeah. But the, 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 I think the application to advertising is so much of research is still based on asking people. Why, Why? Do the things they're doing it? It sends off so often in the wrong direction. Now, Tim Reed, who runs the Tim Reed Partnership, who's yeah. a long-time researcher but is also a convert to behavioural science, yeah. he explained to me in a beautiful sentence how you do market research as a believer in behavioural yeah. science. And he said, what they're saying is irrelevant, but the fact they're what? saying it is important. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. He said, yeah, if people go, ooh, I don't really like the online banking, I'm worried. Now, he said, okay, what they're actually saying, their explanation well, is bullshit. But nonetheless, there is some emotional unease there, which they are then misrepresenting Absolutely. for the purposes of the research group. So I think, you, you, I mean, there's a few things. There's, you know, if you run a, a pub and people 
constantly tell me toilets stink, it's probably not. No, 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 Going into some philosophical dialogue. Sometimes it's just a cigar. Yeah, exactly. There's other bits where you can still use the basic approach of a survey, but know that people often don't tell the truth. So you then set up, you, you go in knowing that. Well, so the toilet so stinking, even the toilet stinking is probably not about the smell of the, you know what I mean? No. It's in other words, my faith in your food hygiene yeah. is or, massively diminished. Or what, what does it do for my yeah. state? So you could, yeah, yeah, what, you know, what does it say about how much you care about your beer, you know, yeah. your toilet, you know. But so by going and cleaning the, the toilet, you answer. would inadvertently get rid of those. See, I, see, I got this theory, which I'd love to know what you think about it, because it might be bullshit. But my theory of, Continuity probability signaling. Do you know this? No, no, no. no. Okay, so in game theory, okay, yeah. the likelihood that someone will be cooperative and will adopt what you might call positive sum, mutually beneficial decisions mm. is broadly determined by the expectation of repeated interaction. Yeah. Okay. So put very simply, there are two ways you can practice capitalism. There's the short game and the long game. There's yeah. the tourist restaurant game, which is these people will walk in because we're right next to Paddington Station. And you're a bit unfair to them, but TripAdvisor changes this a bit because yeah. you now have a risk to being shit. Okay. But previously, if you had a lot of, basically, a lot of non-repeat customers, your best strategy was to rip off. the maximum again. Money if you want to repeat customers, the only way to make money is by engaging in in positive sum, mutually beneficial exchanges. The grapper again, the meal. Including the grapper, including a lot of things that they may not have asked for, requests, or even know they value. Mm. You know, this is why I think procurement can destroy agency relationships. Because if you put a very short time horizon on a relationship and say that um, uh, after, after 18 months or three years, you will repitch for the business, the decision will be made on price, and your past performance yeah, yeah. will have no bearing on future decisions. You're actually incentivizing um, what you might call is uh, yes. pathological or dishonest behavior. Mm. You're making someone into the tourist restaurant yeah. rather than the pub. Because my argument yeah. would be the main reason we do valuable things for our clients unasked for and unbilled, which is possibly the greater part of an ad agency's value, by the way is the shit we were never asked to do, the email we were never asked to send, which is just, have you noticed this? Mm. Has it ever occurred to you that? We were wondering about doing this. Yeah. Okay. You know, the idea we have currently, which I won't say for Kimberly Clark for new product development, totally unasked for. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, it's potentially worth a few million. It might be worth nothing. Yeah. Let's be honest. Things like that. But the reason we do it is because we think it's an investment yeah. in the duration and quality of the relationship, okay? It's not because we've been asked to do it or we're paid to do it, because we aren't, okay? Now, the second you make the relationship time-limited, you know, how great would a marriage be if you automatically yeah. got divorced after three years, right? Yeah. Um, the fact that you have that time, the fact that you have the time limitation makes it essentially yeah. non-cooperative and, uh, uh, you know, the encouragement to defect and to cheat is much higher. So my argument is that a reliable way of signaling your trustworthiness as a human is to do things which only make sense within the context of a long-term relationship. Mm. An engagement ring only makes sense uh, if, because of its upfront expense in the context of a long-term yeah. relationship. So I call that continuity probability signaling. And my hunch is that a huge amount of marketing activity... Oh, yeah. So it, it, when you go into a restaurant, you care about whether the awning's been replaced or whether it's a bit shabby. Now, you're eating inside, the quality of the awning has no bearing on your 
But nonetheless, you trust the restaurant with a new awning, which is patently mm. thinking four years ahead. Whereas the restaurant that's let its awning get a bit shabby might also be yeah letting the now the weirdest part of yeah. all this is my father in the 1970s went to visit Rolls Royce Aero Engines in Bristol yeah okay and he looked up and there was grass growing in the gutters he thought what a bloody weird thing he yeah. said you've got one of the world's premier engineering firms now of course shortly afterwards they had to be bailed out by the government because mm. they went bankrupt. But those kind of symbolic things, which are things you only do if you if you've got long time horizons, would or it wouldn't be ridiculous if humans had evolved to instinctively trust people who do those things, and instinctively yeah. mistrust people. Now you get into really controversial things there about things like you know people who are highly mobile are yeah. they less trustworthy? Than, so is a kebab van less trustworthy than a kebab shop? Yeah, yeah, because absolutely. The kebab van, if it poisons three of its customers, can just drive for 40 miles down the road. Whereas the shop has a sunk cost. Yeah. There's a study about businesses that have the owner's name outperform businesses that don't. Or, and sons, you might argue, or and yeah. daughters, or whatever. Or, because you they've, know, they've it, got, as you would say, skin in the game. They've got, they got reputational oh, skin in the I'm, game. I'm, I'm sure. And a brand is merely oh, one, a reputational manifestation of continuity, yeah. probability, signal. Well, there's a John Kay. I think, I think it's Evan Davis wrote a paper all about advertising only makes sense for a business if they're going to be around in the long term because being ergo, display, ergo uh, a business that's yeah. planning to be around in the long term is a trustworthy business. Yes. Or people who are you know, spending. Or was, if you secretly thought your yeah. product was crap, yes. you wouldn't off you, you'd offload it at markets. Yeah. You wouldn't sell it with great expensive fan. Or you might just spend on immediate <coughs> return. Advertising, yes. not longer term brand. And but Facebook, yeah. for example, the, digital. Oops. The interesting thing. controversial. The, the interesting thing, we did a, a, a study where we asked people how much they thought YouTube ads, TV ads, cinema ads cost. And of course, people didn't get the actual sums right. But they, they, got, they got a basic. Well, yes, yeah, they got the order completely right. They realised that TV was much, much more expensive than YouTube uh, on a per view basis. But this thing, which is, there are three things, I think, and there are only, and I occasionally listen to this yeah. three, which is psychophysics, we don't perceive the world objectively because evolution doesn't want us to, yeah. and there's signalling, uh, and there's, um, ooh, there's another one that begins with S, uh, which is satisfying. Mm. Now, I think if you grasp those three things, okay, which are all deeply counterintuitive, and there, there, there are other things yeah. as well, I mean, you know, um, but satisfying, the really interesting thing about satisfying, okay, is that, if you're trying to buy the best car you can, okay, yeah. then what you will do will look quite rational. You'll read about cars, you'll look about cars, blah, 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 okay. Now, part of a decision, instinctively in humankind, is what you might call um, average maximization. Mm. Part of it is variance reduction. Now, Ole Peter says that in every decision made in an uncertain environment, you've got to factor in both. There's no point in climbing an extra 10 feet up the tree to get better cherries if it comes with a 1% chance of death, okay? In evolutionary terms, uh, we have to go, okay, we have to ask the question, not only how good is this on average, but what's the worst that's happened? Yeah. That's why goalkeepers, by the way, dive left or right. Yes. Because if you stand, stand in the up. middle, yeah. you're actually more likely to block a ball, statistically, but you look much stupider if yeah. you fail. So that's in that's business decision-making, yeah. no one ever got fired for buying IBM. That business of defensive decision-making mm. drives everything. Okay? But there's another really interesting thing, which is variance reduction. 
will involve a series of strategies that often to an economist who's assuming optimization will look completely bonkers. Mm. Okay. So an example would be, and funnily enough, Ole Peters has done it, you buy a second-hand car from a mate. Now, it's not remotely the car you choose, okay, right? The only attribute of that car that really appeals to you is the fact that it was previously owned by someone who's a friend of yours. The, the point being that if your friend thought or suspected or knew that the car was actually a bit shit, he wouldn't sell yes. it to his best mate. Because he's in that long-term... So, I'm also arguing that habit, yeah. kind of Bayesian informed habit, and social copying are both variance reduction strategies. Yeah. So avoidance of crappiness can often involve strategies which are weirdly oblique. Uh, I think the other interesting thing with this whole social proof element is it's a very well-known bias, but then the nuances are, are less well-known. And there's some amazing stuff around, well, it doesn't apply to all people the same. So the Behavioural Insight team showed their famous tax example that, yes, it raised likelihood of people paying tax on time if you told everyone that's what everyone yeah. did. Amongst most groups, but the biggest tax, uh, people who had the biggest um, outstanding loans actually had a negative effect. It reduced their level of payment. And they found that you know, people who owned or owed large amounts, very wealthy, very successful people, social proof seemed to have a less of an effect. They thought they were special, they thought they were different. I think the other one around social proof is fascinating. So there's, there's that angle of, well, don't apply the same bias all the time. Think about who you're talking to. But also think about what moment on all. Or talk to someone. So, and I always butcher his surname, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce one. Chris Kevicus? Yes, did a wonderful study. Yeah, Chris, yeah. okay. Uh, so, he did that wonderful study where they played people either clips from The Shining or something like that. Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor Sunset, I think, something like that. And they, what they found was when they then showed them ads for museums or cafes, that if someone had been primed to be in a romantic mood, that it was all about just, scarcity. Was yes, I, I'm a distinctive person yes. with niche tastes. Whereas if they were scared, then social proof is even more powerful. And we had to cut them off there, though they surely could have gone on for another interesting hour of behavioral science discussion. Thank you to Richard and Rory for their enthusiastic and engaging conversation. So, that's it for the first episode of Obehave for 2018. Richard's book, The Choice Factory, comes out on February 12th and we'll link to where you can buy it in the description. Ogilvy Change also has the pleasure of hosting Richard's book launch here at Seacontainer's House in London, so make sure you keep your eyes peeled for more details on that. In the meantime, if you want to hear more from Richard, he's very active on Twitter, so you can follow him at rshotten. If their conversation has just whet your appetite for more behavioural biases, check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Ogilvy Change and like us on Facebook. And as always, we'd like to thank Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thank you for listening.